Hi, welcome back to Real As Feedback. Each week, we have unfiltered conversations about performance feedback in the workplace and share some real stories with practical tips on how to prevent bias, prejudice, and bullying from masquerading as feedback. Kim Scott is out this week. I am Kieran Snyder, and I'm here with Jackie Clayton. How's it going, Jackie? It's hot. Well, y'all are a Texan. Did I use y'all correctly there? No, but I liked it, though. (laughs) (laughs) What should I have said? Well, I'm a Texan. Give me your dialect. I know. But y'all are hot. All y'all. It's hot. All y'all. All y'all. Thank, thanks, Jackie. Well, we're really excited because we have some very special guests this week. Joining us today are both authors of a brand new book called Glass Walls, Shattering the Six Gender Bias Barriers Still Holding Women Back at Work. And Amy Deal is an award-winning information technology leader and gender equity researcher. Glass Walls is her first book. We're so excited. She's a sought-after speaker, consultant, lawsuit expert witness. Dr. Deal has also authored several scholarly journal articles and chapters of books, and her writing has appeared in Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Ms. Magazine. Amy's co-author, Leanne Dubinsky, is acting dean and associate professor of intercultural education at the Cook School of Intercultural Studies at Biola University in California. She is the author of Women in the Mission of the Church, Their Opportunities and Obstacles Throughout Christian History, and Playing by the Rules, How Women Lead in Evangelical Mission Organizations. She's written many scholarly articles related to gender bias, and her work has been published in Harvard Business Review and Fast Company in addition to all of her scholarship. Prior to moving to California, she worked in Western Europe for many years. Wow, this is a a pretty illustrious author group. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Hi, we're so happy to be here. Yeah, we're so excited. Well, Jackie, I'm going to start with you before we get our experts to weigh in. If you could guess, what do you think is holding women back at work? I did an interesting thing when I did a presentation once and I asked women how many women felt like they were being discriminated against. And it was interesting to see the the gaps in between people who were just starting their career and people who were in their career longer. And the next thing, I had a whole crowd of people crying because it was young people saying, this happened to me and older people saying, oh, this was going on. And I think part of it has just not being able to recognize the difference between like we're talking about feedback or bullying or this is not acceptable or this is behavior that you don't have to tolerate. And I think for a lot of people, it's waiting with hope, waiting for things to happen because that can't be what I heard, that can't be what I experienced, right? Like you're talking yourself out of it. And I think that holds people back of recognizing it soon enough to make a change in their career and not figuring it out at the end of your career. That's what I've noticed. That's interesting. Well, Amy Leanne, what led you to write this book? Before you answer our question and tell us the the barriers that you talk about in the book, what what led you to work on this? Yeah, I'll start. So I, um, it's interesting, your point that you make, Jackie, is really interesting to me because 
when I was in college, I studied computer science, a male-dominated field. I didn't feel any gender barriers in college, but I got into the workforce. And for several years, I didn't really recognize any barriers until I started moving, like moving up. Um, and, and, you know, the, the quick example that I like to give is I would watch, I was in IT. I am in IT. I watched the male leaders around me. I watched how they led. They could be very authoritative in their decision-making. And so I just emulated that, just copied it. But I found out when I acted like that, I was getting negative feedback from my staff and the, it, the, the level of disrespect, whereas my, my, my male boss earned respect, I lost points. So I started a PhD program and in my mid-30s, and I started looking at all the barriers that women face, at least all that were written about in the literature at that time. And the thing that I've noticed that looking back to your point, Jackie, is that there were plenty of things happening to me in my earlier, the earlier years of my career. I just didn't recognize them. And this research has led me to get a better understanding and wish. And Leanne and I have said, we, we wrote the book that we wish we had at the beginning of our careers. But to continue my story, so I started a PhD program. I looked at the gender barriers. I finished the program. Wrote, or I had written my dissertation, which included an analysis of, of the gender barriers I had surfaced so far. And a year later, after I finished my PhD, I met Leanne at a conference. And I'm going to turn it over to her because we ended up meeting at this conference and finding out we had very similar uh, research. And so I'll turn it over to her and let her finish the rest of the story. Yeah, so actually my story is pretty similar to Amy's. Did well in school and college, studied religion and theology, loved it. And then my husband and I signed up to work with a, a nonprofit agency internationally and all the recruiting and all the testing and all the educational requirements, everything was the same. But I realized that once you got deployed with this kind of organization, everything revolved around the men. What was a good placement for the man? How was he going to use his skills in this wherever they sent you? And the women were just kind of left to figure it out on their own. If you were married, you had to figure it out you know, with your husband or your family. And if you were a single woman, you would just kind of get assigned to the closest man in your region to work and support him. And so I was scratching my head going, what is this about? And then I realized that the women who had been doing this work for a while, many of them were kind of cynical and disconnected. They weren't um, happy engaging with their employer. And I was like, wow. And I didn't understand either, like Amy, that what I was seeing was a form of gender bias that was being lived out in the organization. So fast forward a few years, and I also did some doctoral research, and I studied women who were leading in those organizations to understand what, what, what was their experience of trying to be a leader in this realm where it seemed like only the men were visible. And so when Amy and I met at this conference, we started talking about our research, and she had studied higher education, which we all think of as being very liberal, and I had studied religious organizations, which we think of as being very conservative, so we first thought that our women would have wildly different experiences. But the more we talked, the more we realized they were dealing with the exact same thing. And what we finally realized is it's not about the field or the industry or where you work. It's about being a woman in the workplace. And so that has led us on this journey now for the past nine years, I think, of putting all our information and all our scholarship together to really try to be able to name and unpack and make visible all these things that women encounter, no matter what industry you're working in. And precisely back to what you said, Jackie, we wish we'd had this book at the beginning because we didn't know what was happening to us, but we hope that the women coming behind us will be better prepared when they encounter these things. Leanne, your story about earlier in your career collaborating with your husband reminds me of a story I haven't told on this podcast before. Some of our listeners know that my co-founder at Textio is also my husband. So we work together. 
And very early in Textio's journey, we had a very important business meeting with a potential partner. And I, and I say very early, we were weeks old as an organization. And I was the CEO and he was the CTO and we went into the meeting and the guy on the other side of the table, even though I was doing all of the presenting, was addressing all of his attention, energy, and questions to Jensen, to my husband. And no matter what I did, I couldn't reclaim this person's attention. And I'm like a pretty big personality. So that's not been an experience I have a lot. And what Jensen did in that moment is still one of the greatest symbols or or moments of allyship that I've ever experienced, which is he stood up, he brought his laptop and he sat down in this huge conference room right next to the guy on the other side of the table for me. And he just sat there the rest of the meeting. And so it was extremely awkward for the person on the other side of the table. If he wanted to talk to Jensen, he had to like really awkwardly contort his body. So he had to give his attention to me. And it, until Jensen did that, and it was so graceful and so it was an unspoken moment I have never thought of myself as somebody who even needs allyship in that situation. And long story short, we left the meeting and he said, I don't think we want to partner with them, do we? And I said, I don't think we do. But anyway, I'd love to hear uh, maybe from Amy or Leanne, tell us about the top barriers that are holding women back in the workplace. I'd love to hear your perspective. Can I jump in? Can I jump in? Leanne's going to start, but can I jump in quickly to your story? That's a, we name that exactly what you experienced in our book. It's called shunning. And it's a form of male privilege. And it's the first barrier that we discuss. And I'll turn it over to Leanne because she's going to talk about the first uh, three barriers. Great. Yeah. So the first major barrier that we have identified, we call male privilege. And it is sort of the overarching one or the bedrock foundation, depending on how you want to look at it, on which all of the other barriers are built. And it's men's inherent advantage that's simply caused by workplace cultures where men are the leaders who control the resources, they set the standards, they assign the women to a second-class status and sort of set the boundaries of women's leadership. And this one just sets the stage for everything else that follows. And it's unspoken and sometimes unconscious, and it's just the way organizations have developed over many, many, many years. And yet it gets perpetuated and reinforced all throughout work structures. The next thing that women run into in that culture is called, we've called it disproportionate constraints. So women are constrained or limited to act in ways that are supportive of men, and they are also held to unequal standards compared to men. So there are things like muting women's voices. This is one that we hear a lot about. So many ways of making sure women don't get their voices heard in meetings or their ideas brought in and their contributions heard and and acknowledged and valued to support the organization. So being interrupted is one, heat, when a woman says something and a man repeats it, those are, are terms that have entered our vocabulary recently, right? And then it's the credit. I love that. Because he said it, even though he didn't say it first. And then the third one that comes out from this male privilege structure is insufficient support. So in this context, women lack access to social structures and to the networks that would help them advance and do their job well. So it could be unsupportive leaders who simply ignore women's needs or concerns. Sometimes they trivialize us or even disbelieve women when they're reporting discrimination or harassment or workplace problems. So those are the first three, and I'll hand it over to Amy for the rest of them. 
Yeah, so the last three of our six I'll talk about. Um, the first one is devaluation. Devaluation are attempts to uh, make women seem unimportant and detract from their authority. So examples are things like being paid less than men for the same work, being assigned something called office housework. If you don't know what office housework is, it's like all the things that it takes to keep an office running smoothly but are generally not rewarded or acknowledged, you know, like cleaning the office refrigerator or taking notes in a meeting or helping your colleague with a project. And then another one is another type of devaluation is something that we termed, um, we coined this term, credibility deficit. It's when women's words are not believed simply because they are women. And um, if you've ever been, if you've ever stated something and had a man or had somebody say to you, are you sure? Are you sure that's right? After you've made a statement, that's credibility deficit. Or sometimes they'll ask a man to second your, you know, they'll turn to the man beside you and say, is she right? To ask for, for confirmation. The fifth of our six barriers is hostility. Hostility is an active resistance to women's presence in the workplace through overt discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. It's with the goal of keeping women in their supposed place. And I want to make a note here, this includes female hostility, which we discuss in the book, such as queen bee beha behaviors. So because of the male-controlled environment, Women may feel insecure in their own positions and therefore try to keep other women down. And so we delve into that very deeply, deeply in the book. The sixth and last barrier is acquiescence. Due to the combined weight of all the other barriers, women internalize the obstacles, accept them as valid, and adapt to the limitations. Examples are self-silencing, such as being quiet on workplace sexism for their own uh, self-protection and sometimes not reporting even when they've experienced harassment or discrimination. Again, it's for their own, own self-protection. Another example of acquiescence is uh, self-limited aspirations. And this is where women make a very rational choice to not pursue advancement because they don't want to deal with the hassles that men don't face. And so I want to point out two more things related to this podcast. When we think about feedback, there are two of the six barriers that really, that really stand out. And the first one is uh, insufficient support. We've had stories of women, stories from women who've had unsupportive leaders who have failed to give them any performance for feedback. And these women just felt ignored. And then the second is the concept of uh, unequal standards, which falls under the second barrier, which is disproportionate constraints. In this situation, women are held to higher standards than men or just blatantly different standards than men. Like, for example, they may be expected to perform emotional labor or, and they may be given feedback that they are to maintain a positive demeanor. So many women have said they have been told to smile more, even as part of their performance, their performance feedback. But really, when you think about it, any of the six barriers can be a, a basis for biased feedback to women in the workplace. Yeah, thank you for sharing and especially for featuring a couple of those that you see as particularly relevant to feedback. I'll, I'll add in and then I'm curious for Jackie's take, having worked in the DEI space for such a long time, we've seen on the Textio data side that those patterns, absolutely we see those patterns show up in written feedback for women and we see them show up even more for written feedback received by Black and Latino women and for women over 40 and women under 25, right? So you, as a woman, you might have a narrow window of opportunity if you're white and 33 years old, 
And by the way, straight, I assume, although we we don't have the data set around that to, to substantiate it yet. So Jackie, I'm, I'm curious, how have you seen those patterns play out in the teams that you've worked with in terms of what you've observed? Well, as you probably know, well, Kieran P.S. is my boss, in case people don't know that. So Kieran will know I was fully triggered by every chapter. I like was like, can we just pause? <laughs> Let's just pause for a minute. Before- Wait, there's more? Okay. Okay. Can we pause? It's hit- it hits a lot throughout the years. And I think a couple of things that were really notable, I'm hiring, hiring for a role right now, and someone posted... I think you should talk to Jackie. She's the only one in the DEI place space that's actually supported to do this work. And it made me think about it a lot where so many times women are not supported. They don't have the support to be able to move forward even if they want to. And I think we see that a lot of in the DEI B space where a lot of times people are talking back to the authority that they report to to let them know the challenges that they're having. Like, I think this is a little bit homophobic or this is sexist or this is that. And then the next thing you know, there's no longer a place for that DEIB professional in those spaces of not recognizing that part of being included also means not being sexist. I don't know why this is a shocker for a lot of people, but it is. It's not just a race issue when we're talking about things like that. But something else that stands out is in my own relationship with my own husband in in telling him about the work. I got something back and I was being bullied and I was like, this is what happens on a regular basis. And I was like, how do you think I got through all of this tech stuff? Like he didn't realize, even though my background was in technology, that that was a common theme throughout the whole process up to this point. And it's like, well, you either accept it, you speak out and you risk it and you recognize you get to a certain point of your career. It takes a long time before you have the privilege enough to be able to be able to speak out confidently. And when you don't know where to go, you don't know how that support is, it can be a really scary place, a very scary place. Yeah. Well, we love talking about concrete examples on the show. We often have a guest share an example and do a a listener sharing an example. But today we have two guests, and we're going to do your two examples especially in light of some of the barriers that you've just described, we'd love to hear examples of feedback that you've received that have been particularly formative for you. And it could be feedback that was problematic or biased in some way, because that's formative too. You might analyze it differently in retrospect. Or it could be a really wonderful example of somebody who got it right, who gave you just the feedback that you needed at the time, because we also love to give our listeners an idea of what good looks like. So maybe, Leanne, let's start with you. I would love to hear an example of feedback you received that was particularly formative for you. Okay. So this one happened to me many years ago, long before Amy and I met, long before I started researching gender bias. And I was part of a team doing leader development training for an organization. And one of the team members decided to bring in a speaker without properly vetting them, without even actually checking with the other two of us on the team that were leading this initiative. And so the speaker's doing the sessions all morning and I'm watching our participants and the speaker was terrible. And the participants were getting more and more disengaged. Some of them were even starting to like be a little hostile. It just was not working. And so on our lunch break, I told my colleague that the speaker wasn't working and we needed to just shift gears and do something else for the afternoon. 
And he was furious. And the feedback I eventually got, although my decision was clearly the correct one, was that I had delivered it incorrect. I was too direct and I had hurt his feelings. And so I wasted so much time and energy trying to make sense of that event. And I st- clearly, I still remember it right after all these years. I had checked with the participants during the morning coffee break to be sure I was reading the situation correctly. And I was, they all affirmed it. And I wasn't accusatory when I delivered the feedback to him. I just said, hey, this isn't working. We need to shift gears. But he felt attacked because he had chosen the speaker. Now, never mind that he didn't check with the rest of the team or do the vetting process that he should have done. I was the one who got blamed for you know, his mistake. So now looking back, I know that that was really an example of how gender bias works. I did the same thing men do all the time. And I got criticized for not managing his emotions properly. According to my supervisor, I should have been doing the emotional labor to buffer his hurt feelings, which is a kind of unequal standards that we discuss in the book. What happened after this? So you received the feedback. What did you do? So I defended myself a little bit. And then because these were, you know, sort of one one day offsite things, I just went back to doing my normal job. I think it was a year or more before that colleague would speak to me again. So that was, yeah. Fortunately, we didn't see each other on a daily basis. We had come from different places to this offsite for the event. Yeah, it was rough. And I, like I said, I wasted, now I think wasted so much time trying to figure out what I had done wrong. Wow. Love to hear your take on this, Jackie. I have, though, I've been in those situations. I didn't realize that you were talking about emotional labor. Like, and it's so true My first thought that I was like, how you feel about that is not my business, (laughs) right? And I think my mom used to tell me that. How someone thinks about you is none none of your business. Like, maybe, sure, sorry about that. So it sounds like something to take up with your therapist. But at the same time, it's like, what do you even do in that situation? Like the conference is happening. That Like I kind of feel that panic too of how would I have handled that situation? And I am curious hindsight, Leanne, like, how do you think, how do you wish you would have handled that situation? Would you have changed now that you have the information that, because I was like, I'm thinking, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I think if I had the opportunity again, I had a little bit of advance warning that he was bringing this speaker in. And that is where I really should have started right there, right off the bat. I should have said, wait, this isn't what we agreed on. This isn't how we're supposed to be doing this particular day. Let's vet this person properly. Where's the CV? Where are the qualifications? What are they going to do? Are they going to be appropriately interactive? Are they going to stand there and lecture for five hours straight? I should have had more. I didn't have the self-confidence at that point to step in. But looking back, I wish I had. Yeah. And I, by the way, your colleague remembers this as having been aggrieved and missed the memo that actually... He didn't do a great job getting set up for the event in the first place. Like, you know, when when somebody goes into their feelings, and by the way, providing clear, calm, direct observations in the moment is literally what your job was to do. Like your job was to create an offsite event for participants that was successful. So there's nothing else you could have done in the moment other than name when things are going off the rails to try to try to bring them back. And I think the typical way that the sort of gender dynamic plays out here is you've been thinking about it ever since and your colleague probably didn't have any occasion to reflect on the steps he might have taken that led to the offsite going off the rails in the first place that's kind of a bummer but thank you for sharing the story 
What, which of your barriers in your book do you think are applicable in your example, Leanne, if any? Oh, I think this is an unequal standards ones for sure. He, in multiple ways. So he brought somebody in without doing, following the proper process. If I had done that, I would so get dinged, right? And then I was expected to, like we said, take care of his emotions and buffer his emotions. And that whole emotional labor thing of managing men's emotions at work is part of the unequal standards one as well. There's probably more operating. Amy, does another one jump out at you? Absolutely. My story? No, I think you, I think you've hit it. Well, Amy, we'd love to hear your story. Do you have a happy story for us or is yours a tough one as well? Okay, we'll, 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 we'll go on the journey with you. And part of the reason that I, that we chose, or at least I chose a bias story was because this is our, this is our work, but I had a male boss. Okay. Who at one time, this was, this was the feedback. The feedback was simple. <laughs> he told me that I was a manager, but not a leader. And, and that was the extent of the feedback. Okay. In this, in this particular conversation, but ironically, this was around the time I was starting a PhD program in administration and leadership studies. <laughs> And I had been working at a director level in my, at my organization for several years previously. So I had a role where I was to be a leader, but he did not see me as a, as a leader. The thing I re recall most about working for this boss is that I had learned, I worked for him for many years, and I had learned to run my decisions through the lens of what would my boss want me to do? What would he want me to do? Not a lens of what is the best decision for the organization, but the lens of what would he want me to do. So I always checked in with him first before I moved forward on any decision that I thought that I thought could, I'll just say it this way, could get me in trouble <laughs> so that I knew I would be protected if things went sideways. Because I knew that if I made a decision on my own and I got criticized from externally, that that blame was going to go right back, right to me. It wasn't going to be on him, it was going to be right to me. So what would often, so what I did, so like I said, I always would check in with him before, before making decisions, but what I found out or what I realized is what's happening. And this is again, me realizing this in retrospect. Okay. He would take my ideas and he would be the mouthpiece for them without giving me credit. Okay. So he'd be, he would be bro appropriating them, which we talk about in our book in the chapter of disproportionate constraint. So. Like I said, I didn't recognize it as bro appropriating at the time. I just recognized it. I thought of it as this is just the way that this is just the way that workplaces work. This is just the way that things should happen. <laughs> but to summarize um, to his first point about I'm, a I'm acting as a manager, but not a leader. To the extent that I wasn't being a leader at that time, I also wasn't being given safety or support to truly lead my own my own area. Because like I said, I knew that if I made the wrong, if I made a mistake, or just made a decision he didn't agree with, I would not, ha I would not be, you know, I'd be quickly kicked under the bus. How long did it take you to recognize the patterns? You know, how, how long after the fact did you kind of look backwards? Sometimes things are clearer in the rearview mirror. How long did it take you to get that insight? Well, all this, all this insight, <laughs> it's taken me probably years, you know, just because of, and through all the, through all the study. But, but obviously this piece of feedback has, stuck with me because when he said it to me, I took it very personally. And I thought, you know, I didn't have the self-confidence. We talked about self-confidence. I didn't have the self-confidence that I have today. If somebody told me that today, I would have all kinds of things to say to them. <laughs> but in, this was somebody who I also had a very, um, I would say, we had worked together for a long time. And so I felt like I could be open with him. It wasn't a situation where I felt that I had to be 
be extremely careful with what I said when I was with him, when we were working together. But it took me a, it took me a long time to realize that it really wasn't personal to me, that maybe, you know, again, looking at, at it through the lens of all of our research, it made, it was likely to do with his feeling of, uh, I think, insecurity in his own role. I think he saw me as somebody, I think he really viewed, he knew that I had potential and I had good ideas, but he wanted me in a place underneath of him. He wanted me there making him look good, right? Giving him the ideas, giving him my strategies, you know, running the team, making sure that things didn't need to filter up to him, you know, keeping everything running smoothly. But I think he had a vested interest in keeping me in my place, in my place, subordinate to him, one level underneath him and not, not really helping me to grow, like to grow as a leader. I think back to like a better way, if you really felt that I wasn't being a leader, well, could you maybe sit down with me and develop a, you know, come up with a plan, come up with some steps, like where, what should I be doing to uh, improve? That wasn't, but that wasn't the purpose of that comment. The comment was just to kind of, like, it was just a one-off comment, just to, I feel, I feel to keep me in my place. Well, Leanne and Jackie, if Amy Next Generation comes forward today with this story, so we have our, our next generation, there, there's Amy in a new organization or Amy's, Amy's protege, what advice would we give to Amy for managing the situation? And then Amy, I want to hear your advice at the end for the, the, the woman who's in the situation in the future. But I'd love to hear from, let's start with Leanne on your, your advice to an, a person in the situation. I keep reflecting on the age dynamic in this one as well, right? So it was early on for Amy, and you mentioned earlier how you're too young and then you're too old. And we actually have an article that was published recently where we say there's actually no age that's the right age, right? Because according to the research, you're too old, then middle age has got this whole slew of problems that get used as an excuse. And then you're, you're did I go it the wrong way? You're too young, then you're too middle-aged, and then you're too old, but it's never just right. And I think part of what was going on Amy is because she was younger than her boss, it made it easier for her to think that maybe this was okay. She kind of said that. And so if I were talking to a young Amy now, I would try to help her see that, no, this isn't all right. You were hired to do this particular job. And this man who's older than you is taking advantage of you by using your ideas and trying to sort of put you down by telling you you're not really good enough. You're just good enough to sort of support him and make him look good. And that's not acceptable. Right. Jackie? I think one of the things I would say is to try to get a mentor, making sure that you have a mentor, someone to bounce these ideas off of, either internally, by preference, it's somebody that you work with that know the situation, knows the company culture and the dynamics. And if not, somebody externally that you can bounce these ideas off of. Uh, the other thing that I uh, would consider is having, when you have ideas, it's something that I recommend sometimes to the people that I mentor is to write it down and send it in advance. I was thinking about this idea. I'd love to get your feedback with your mentor or someone else. So it's kind of like you have a date stamp. Like I've already discussed this. This is something that we've already brought up. This, when it comes up to be able to say, this sounds oddly familiar. We were just talking about that. Me and Cheryl were just talking about that two weeks ago. <laughs> like here's the, the part that put out, that I put out. But I think it's also important to, to learn to find your voice and not being afraid of finding your voice in a respectful way of, set, of bringing things up and saying, wait, this was the idea that I came up with for this purpose. Because a lot of times I found when people are taking your ideas for themselves, they can only take the idea, but they can't take the implementation. They can't further that agenda across. They only have one piece. And so since they haven't had it fully 
gone through, it generally doesn't work. And it's like, I want this to work in a, in a certain way. So my hope is that people can find their voice, find the voice to be able to say, hey, this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't the way this is supposed to go down. Well, Amy, tell us the end to the story. What happened? Yeah, the end to the story is that it's just what Jackie said. I ended up getting a mentor and a sponsor, the same person. It, it was my boss's boss who wasn't as he was looked at him as being much more secure in his position. And so he was not somebody that had any need to feel threatened by a young woman in the workplace. <laughs> he had every reason to want to help me grow and develop and professionally. So he kind of took me under his wing. And for several years, actually, when I had started the PhD, my PhD program, he mentored me. And what ended up happening was that he became then a sponsor when my boss was moved into um, oversee a new area. And to oversee the new area, he had to give up some of his old area, which meant giving up me and my, my people, so uh, my group. And so what ended up happening was that this mentor slash sponsor became my new boss. So I moved up a level and my boss and I basically became, in the hierarchy, we became peers. Although I mentioned this in the book, he also gave me, he also had said to me right before we were making this transition, I, I said to him, I'm like, we're going to be peers, like in the hierarchy. <laughs> and he said to me very disparagingly, I think, um, he just said, you'll never be my peer. And I, and I do mention this in the book because it like he, it was just, it just kind of culminated in everything that I had realized, you know, started to realize that yes, he, it wasn't that he didn't value me. He just only valued me in one role. And that was underneath him, supporting him, making him look good. You know, weirdly that comment at the end, though terrible, was such a gift for you to validate that all the feelings you'd been having about the situation were, were correct, right? I mean, and any any tendency you might have had to feel gaslit in that comment, you were like, nope, I was right. What I thought was going on was exactly what was going on. And so, of course, he didn't intend it as a gift, but I'm actually glad you got that kind of closure to the experience, which otherwise might have been more haunting for a longer period of time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And by that point, I could take it as, like, it didn't, it didn't affect me emotionally. I mean, I was... Like, of course, like, why are you having to say this? But it didn't, I didn't have to take it personally. I understood that it was coming from somewhere else and not something, it wasn't a failing of mine for myself. Well, we have been joined today by Leanne Dubinsky and Amy Deal, who have just released Glass Walls, Shattering the Six Gender Bias Barriers, Still Holding Women Back at Work. And we've been so grateful to have your perspective on the show uh, to our listeners, if you have a story you would like to share or guests you would like to recommend that join us for the show, remember you can drop us a note at mystory@realasfeedback.com. So Amy, Leanne, Jackie, thanks for being here today. Really appreciate it. Can't wait to read the book. I'm very excited and, and have it on my bedside table right now. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. Yes. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.